Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. This was a great idea for a fall day like this. I 100% agree. What better way to see the park than by bike? Especially since we haven't really spent a lot of time above 86th Street. I can't wait to see what more there is. I mean, there are beautiful gardens, a waterfall, and don't forget about the Jackie Kennedy Onassis Reservoir. Isn't that where all the boats are? Like by the Bethesda Fountain? No, 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 no. That's the lake. The reservoir is so much bigger. The bottom of it touches 86th Street, but it goes all the way up to 97th. It's beautiful to run around. Oh, that sounds like a great first stop. I hear it's especially beautiful in the winter. Then we'll just have to come back in winter and see it. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the historical show, All the Way. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. Welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Everybody wants power. Everybody. And if they're saying they don't, they're lying. And everybody thinks it ought to be given out free like Mardi Gras beads, because they're going to do real good with it. Nothing is free. Not even good. It's not personal. It's just politics. These were the words spoken from the stage by LBJ in the political thriller and subject of our show today, All the Way. The show browbeat its way into the hearts and minds of Broadway audiences with its memorable events and slogans, as well as fast-paced and detailed writing. But before we can get to the big day, we have to first start at the convention. So let's lay the groundwork. All the Way was commissioned by the Oregon Shakespeare Festival as part of its American Revolutions, the United States History Cycle. It premiered at OSF on July 28, 2012, directed by Bill Ranch, with Jack Willis originating the role of LBJ. A reading of All the Way was held in January 2013 at Seattle Repertory Theater as part of the theater's new play festival. It was paired with The Great Society, also by Robert Schenken. The play was produced in September 2013 at the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, directed by Roch with Brian Cranston as LBJ. The play sold out its American Repertory Theater run, and strong sales were reported for previews of its limited Broadway run at the Neil Simon Theater. On June 5, 2014, the producers announced that the play had recouped its $3.9 million investment in under four months. All the Way is the first of two plays by Schenken on Johnson's presidency. 
The second part, The Great Society, premiered at OSF on July 27, 2014. Jack Willis, who played Johnson at its Oregon premiere, played Johnson again in The Great Society in Oregon. The sequel, also directed by Roch, continues the Johnson story from 1964 to 1968. This is the perfect time to introduce our design team. The playwright was Robert Schenken, director Bill Roch, scenic design Christopher Acebo, costume design Deborah M. Dryden, lighting design by Jane Cox, composer and sound design by Paul James Prendergrass, projection design Sean Sagady, and hair and wig design by Paul Huntley. The show arrived at the Neil Simon Theater on March 6, 2014, where it would remain for 131 performances, closing on June 29, 2014. Schenken describes All the Way as a play about, quote, the morality of politics and power. Where do you draw the line in terms of intentions and action? How much leeway does a good intention give you to violate the law? The play is set in a semicircle dais around the central portion of the stage. The New York Observer said that the surrounding seats serve as congressional hearing rooms and as spots for ever-present observers to sit and watch, but mostly they render the stage as a coliseum with everything that happens, a battle, or maybe a courtroom. LBJ is always on trial. Unlike previous dramatic depictions of Johnson, such as Barbara Garson's satirical 1967 play, McBird, Johnson is portrayed sympathetically. Writing in the New York uh, Times, Sam Tenenhaus said that All the Way portrays Johnson, quote, as something far more interesting and even inspiring, the last and perhaps greatest of all legislative presidents with his wizardly grip on the levers of governance at a time when it was still possible for deals to be brokered and favors swapped and for combatants to clash in an atmosphere of respect, if not smiling concord. The play reveals the discrimination against African Americans that sparked the creation of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. It portrays a new era that sparked in America that would promote integration and equal opportunities to African Americans. The play also revealed the process of the United States Congress undergoes to pass any bills being presented. The show would receive two Tony Award nominations that season, both of which it would win that evening. Best Play and Best Actor in a Leading Role in a Play for Brian Cranston, who played LBJ. So let's delve into the personal and political story before us. After the assassination of John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963, and continues through Johnson's landslide election victory on November 3, 1964. In his first year as president, 
Johnson Engineers' passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Johnson has Senator Hubert Humphrey of Minnesota reach out to liberal congressmen and civil rights groups, while Johnson personally deals with Southern congressmen who are deeply opposed to the legislation. The act has trouble getting passed through the United States Senate more than the United States House of Representatives. Among the opposition to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 were Senators Storm Thurmond and James Eastland. Their opposing views seem to be complicated to manipulate, causing the Civil Rights Act some trouble getting passed and off of the Senate floor. At the end of Act 1, eventually the law passes the Senate by Johnson's use of cajolery, arm-twisting, and blackmail to get his way. Johnson himself is from the South. He is close to the re- a recalitrant Southern congressman, and he uses homespun and sometimes off-color stories to persuade him. Johnson is portrayed as emotionally needy and vulnerable, even as he rides roughshod over the other people, such as his wife, Lady Bird Johnson, and his longtime aide, Walter Jenkins, who is forced to resign after he is arrested on moral charge. He is disdainful of Humphrey and promises the vice presidency to him in the 1964 elections if he goes all the way with Johnson. Johnson engages in spirited conversations with Senator Richard Russell Jr. of Georgia, who strongly opposes the legislation, but finds that his ability to stop the bill has ebbed because of Johnson's tactics. On the other side, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. must contend with more conservative leaders such as Roy Wilkins, the, who opposes civil rights marches and militant leaders like Stokely Carmichael, who favor strong action. The more activist, civil, the more activist leaders prevail and launch the Freedom Summer, young college students ride buses into the South to desegregate facilities. Three Freedom Riders, Michael Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, and James Cheney, are killed allegedly by police brutality, forcing Johnson to send in the FBI and further inflaming emotions. J. Edgar Hoover is shown eavesdropping on Dr. King. In the second act, the action shifts to Atlantic City, New Jersey, where a battle is brewing at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. The segregated Mississippi delegation is challenged by the integrated Mississippi Freedom, Demo- Freedom Democratic Party. Outside of the Democratic Convention is the MFDP activist and leader demanding a seat in the convention that would integrate the votes. Fannie Lou Hamer, one of the MFDP leaders, tells her story on national television of her mistreatment by the Winona Chief Police County Jail that would provoke the MFDP to get a seat at the convention. This all happens as Johnson struggles on creating a strategy that would make both the MFDP and the primary party voters satisfied. 33 days until the election, Johnson and Barry Goldwater scores are head-to-head to win the presidential seat. The, the end. end. 
now let's talk about the parts of the show that we liked. And maybe liked. Yeah. I absolutely, positively, absolutely love this show. But then again, I love good political theater. I'm all about that. I love me my West Wing. I love me just, I just love political theater, political drama. Om nom 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 nom. I could eat it all day. And I learned so, so much from this show. Um, I learned how the modern po uh, political parties kind of came to be. Um, like, for instance, I'm sitting there watching, and I was like, wait, these southern Dixocrats? And I was like, I am confused. But then I was like, ah, the Republican Party is the party of Lincoln. Lincoln being the person who, quote, freed the slaves and all that. But then if you look at modern politics, it's like, this couldn't be further from... Yeah, further from what our modern political parties... But then you look at this time at where the Democrats were and, like, being against the Civil Rights Act, and then you look at now, and it's like, how did we get here? And it's like, wow, in the 60s, they basically switched names. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, how interesting. Like, that's... Hmm. You know, and I didn't know that. Then learning about the Mississippi burning murders, I didn't know about that, and I was literally appalled. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God. Like, this is, wow. Um, I learned so much about Dr. Martin Luther King and his private life, because uh, I hadn't seen previously The Mountaintop, mm -hmm. uh, or even read it at that time, and I didn't know much about his private life. So I just knew him as this great civil rights leader, this incredible icon, all of that stuff. Learning more about his private life, I was like, "Oh, you weren't an angel." But yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't one hundred percent pure. Right. Not to take away any of the no, work he did, what, but I was like, human, "Wow, you were hu you were human." Yeah. What human is one hundred percent pure? You know what I mean? And even LBJ in his private life you know well see here's the thing that this show kind of taught me because as far as what i knew about lbj i knew the line from hair um where lbj took the irt right you know whatever didn't really know what that meant but then also i had heard that lbj was kind of an asshole and liked to show his penis you know, that's kind of what I knew about him. I also knew that he liked to dictate and have meetings while he was on the toilet. Yeah, and so what I knew of him wasn't really great. And so, so much of me was like, I didn't realize that he, it was under his presidency that the um, Civil Rights Act was passed. And so just understanding how really complicated this time in our history was, was mind-blowing for me yeah well he carried a lot of the legacy and a lot of the goals that jfk wanted to do onward through his presidency um which was he didn't he had no obligation to but i think he knew that they were right if that makes sense yeah um i loved brian cranston's um, depiction of LBJ. I thought it was spot on. If you look at picture or video clips of LBJ from that time, and then you look at Brian Cranston's depiction, like it's incredible. Mm -hmm. um, it was like seeing him alive and in the flesh. You know, it's amazing. For me, this was just an absolute win from top to bottom. It, it was such an incredible show. 
it was just chef's kiss. Well, and it could be, I mean, for those of us who don't follow political policy all that often, um, it was still easy to get, you know, sucked into the drama yes. of what was happening, yes. which I think is just brilliant. So should we head down the road of our little boxes? Yeah, let's go ahead and tick the boxes. So let's start with the set. I love the Coliseum. Um, I love the feel of the stage, the idea that someone is always watching the events on stage. Because that's the thing is, if I remember correctly, most of the cast didn't just like go off in the wings and they were out in the wings. There was always people on stage and they were watching. And so there was always people watching, i.e. judging. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it uh, and that 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 Romanesque feeling. Yes, like it really just felt like we were all there to not only bear witness but also participate. Well, and the one of the main plays or subjects of this play, I should say, being the Civil Rights Act and the fact that the Senate really was holding it up. The idea that the set reflected the Roman Senate. Mm-hmm. was really creative to me. So that all these scenes took place right there um, on the chamber floor of, of Congress or of the, sen- uh, of the Senate. And, 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 you know, they would bring in just like this desk or this chair or a podium or whatever it was, and that scene would take place there. But everyone could watch. All these senators could watch. And it didn't necessarily um, affect the real world perspective, but at the same time, it was like, but how can you ignore this information? So, I mean, you know, it, it, it's, okay. it, it, it messes, it's that duality of historical interpretation. So it's kind of like, hey, Strom Thurmond, if you knew X, Y, and Z, would you have still voted the same way? Right. Probably because he was a racist. But, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, it puts it in a different perspective. Um, it makes, I guess, uh, let me think on it to how to put it a different way, but I love that that Romanesque Senate feel. Um, I also love the retro look of everything. The sixties are fun. The sixties are just a good fun time. So all the the quirky angles of stuff and the retro look of things was really great. Mm-hmm. The TVs with the big knobs, but they had little thin legs, you know, that poked out. Mm-hmm. That sixties look. The postmodern. Yeah. Is yeah. what is that the, what is that what yeah. it's called? Yeah. Perfect. Good to know. Um, I also loved, I don't know do you, if you remember this, um, the use of projections and, bl- the, and the black and white TV moments. Mm-hmm. So they were projecting the live TV moments on the back wall, but it was in the 60s quality and in black and white. So, so what I mean by that, I, I, that's probably not clear. So we'd be having a scene of some sort on stage. So like, you know, LBJ addressing people or congress or an interview a good good thing from our synopsis is when um um oh 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 um fanny lou hamer is giving the interview so so that would um be happening on stage and there'd be the cameraman right but that same that moment's also being projected on the back wall but it's in that 1960s but it was like Quality. the actual footage, wasn't it? No, no, no. It was it was the closed circuit, but it was in the 1960s video quality. So it looked like it could have been that video from mm-hmm. then. And I love that because, you know, you, 
to be able to manipulate that and make it look of the time. Right. Because that, you know when you see a clip and you can immediately pinpoint what point in time that's from, that digital quality? Yes. That to me is just awesome. So um, I don't remember if they use clips from, like actual clips from. See, uh, I think at the time I must have thought then that it was actual clips. That's how good it was. Yeah, I don't remember them not being the real clips. I think they might have used a clip from JFK's funeral to start the show. I think because it's right, it starts right after his funeral. Yeah. Um, but I want to move on if we can to costumes because I know that I think we're both itching to talk about the costumes, and it's okay. Well, okay, I'm gonna get this out of the way. The men, the men wore suits. Yay, suits! And I'm. I like a three-piece suit. There were no really three-piece suits in here. This is, I, I'd say the 60s is where we get into like our modern suits where it's a shirt, a jacket, and pants. Yes, and we're, we've kind of dropped the vest. Yeah. Now, there were still some people wearing vests because it kind of showed where they stood in the political spectrum. But really, it was just a suit, and it was like, yay. Now, Brian Cranston had those iconic LBJ glasses, those 1960 glasses with the, you know, the black rooms and that. But really, the men were not the focus of the costumes. I want to talk about the women. Because, oh my gosh, those outfits, those those dresses. And, well, not necessarily also dresses, but the, the they're not suits. They're the two-piece, you know, the skirt and the they're top. Suits. They're, they're suits? They're, those they're, are they're, suits? They're, it's, a, it's a pencil skirt suit. Yes. Uh, particularly the two, peop- the two characters that sent out to me are Lady Bird Johnson and then uh, Mrs. King. This is Dr. King's wife. So good. They were so good. And I would love to find more pictures of it to see if they were actual replicas of, of clothing that they wore, mm-hmm. you know. But they were just so iconic. Um, those dresses and those suits with the overcoats, too. That's mm-hmm. the other. Oh, they just looked so good. Um, well, and I just loved all the pattern, and, the patterns, and the color palettes used because I mean, anytime you see footage from the '60s, it's in black and white, so you don't really get the vibrancy that there were lots of different colors. I mean, nowadays we a lot most, of pastels, and yeah. Things like that. Right now, we kind of really, even in men's suits and women's suits, like we stick to navy and black and gray. The fact that President Obama wore a tan suit and everyone lost their mind, it's like it's. Yeah, like in the '60s, it, every color in the box was there. You like yeah. fabric was just like it is for anything else. Like it could be any color you wanted it to be. Yeah, and we integrated these different tweeds and you know um, plaids and just you know different textures into it because the cuts were all the same. Which I think is just a very interesting commentary about what was happening in the '60s. Yes, with um, mainstream fashion. Yes. And I, I, I want to mention um, LBJ's assist, assistant, Walter uh, Jenkins. Of course, he was arrested on morals charges. Um, basically, he, being a homosexual. Yeah. And I will say his suits were tailored a different way. And, and he... I want to be careful the way I say this because I don't want to say he looked like a homosexual, but like he didn't look like everyone else. He looked a lot cleaner, a lot nicer. He did care about his image a lot more. Where all these other older men, these other senators and 
the president and whatnot. Their suits didn't fit quite as well, a little crumbling well, on the oh, leg okay, and whatnot. So here's, and Walter's was a little more fitting and So this is the crisp. difference I'm going to say um, in what I viewed in that. You had all of the senators that were these big powerhouse players that treated their suits like whatever because they didn't have to clean them and iron them. So they looked good, but they would get crumpled and they were kind of lived in. Whereas Walter took care of his own stuff. Hmm. And so there's a certain distinction. There's a certain care that you treat articles of clothing when you take care of them yourself. Right. Well, and Walter took care of his own clothing, which is why he treated them with more respect and was kind of othered just in that physicality of his clothing. Right. And just knowing knowing him, knowing his story, in costuming alone, it singled him out. Mm-hmm. You know, I would not say that the way he was costumed made him look like a homosexual. Because then I could go on the rant about, well, what does a homosexual look like? Because no, right. that's, no, that's, but it's, that's I think I think what it comes down to is it's the respect he showed his clothing yeah and presented himself but i thought it was a smart choice by the designer to point out that he is and he was different than -hmm. everyone else but that that subtle way because we didn't get into his personal life Mm -hmm. per se so um the last thing i want to mention about costume i'm sure you've been just bubbling to talk about we got to talk about the hair we've got to talk about the hair i love a nice quaff Hair, I love a nice beehive, and that's exactly what we got. Dear Jackie O, thank you for that. And <laughs> there's there's one other thing. I, I know it's not hair, but it's hair-related that we have to thank Jackie O for, for popularizing the pillbox hat. Yeah. Yeah, the pillbox hat. I mean... Okay, look, women wore it before, but I mean, when the the first lady was wearing it, it was like, oh my gosh, now I gotta wear the pillbox. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. the they looked so good, so real, so good. It was brilliant. Now I do want to throw one other thing in there. Um, we we are focusing so much about the women and their hair. I want to focus a little on the men. Because the 60s had a really definitive look, in my opinion. You either had this long, hippie kind of hair, and I'm not talking about, like, long all the way down your back. Just long. Like, I would be considered a hippie with my long, curly hair. Or you had that clean-cut Washington look. Right. Very militaristic, off the ears, buzz at the bottom, combed perfectly, you know. Right. Well, and I think for me, the way that I would describe the difference is... You had the clean cut that showed that they went to the barber every single week. Mm-hmm. And then the latter, where it was growing out, where they maybe didn't go to the barber as often. Right. And I think it also goes to show how, where they play that, where they place the importance in their lives. What, where does image stand in their lives? What, what value do they have? Is that the most important thing in their life? Or is there other things that value? Yeah, but what I mean by that is, I love that they made sure to maintain that. Mm-hmm. That could have been something over... They could have just said, part your hair, that'd be good. But, I mean, you could have set your watch to all of the older characters, all of these senators, all of these congressmen, you know, LBJ. It was perfect. And also, I this is going to be a really weird detail, um, but I noticed it, the wide tooth comb. Mm-hmm. Their hair mm-hmm. had that wide tooth comb. It wasn't super close like we would see later in like the 90s and that 
it had those wide cuts in their hair. And I was just like, this is, it's those little details that really make the difference, you know? And I was like, yeah, you guys look like totally out of the 60s, so. Um, how about lights? Oh my gosh. Okay, so one thing I want to um, point out, and I don't know if you remember, but anytime that uh, LBJ was addressing the Senate or the whole of Congress or whenever he was making like a presidential proclamation or whatever, when he'd be in the middle of the Coliseum, the lights would come up on the audience. So it, I we didn't remember that. Yeah, we were lit. It was so we were up. part of the Congress. Yes. So it was that way of pulling us into the story by taking us out of the dark. I did not remember that. Mm-hmm. It was That's... one of my favorite parts because I remember in my memories, every time I start to look back, like I can see, like it felt like I was really at a at a rally or really at a um, at a congressional hearing or whatever, you know, at a, I was really there because the lights were up around me. Huh. I wasn't lost in the dark and just viewing what was happening on stage. I was immersed in the experience because it felt like, it felt like I was there and that was done brilliantly by the lights. Because I feel like when you're using the house lights, um, it is either there to take the audience out of the story or in this brilliant way where they were able to pull us deeper in. That's really smart. Um, for me, I thought the lighting created, uh, it was good at creating that mood of anticipation as well as hesitation, but also tension. All the yuns. Anticipation, hesitation, and tension. Because there was, like, are we going to get this pass? Are we going to get this pass? Well, we have to wait just a minute. We've got to wait for the right moment. But then yeah. it was that, like, is it going to happen? You know, we know how the outcome happened. We yeah. know, but we were still... Like, hanging on every like, yeah. cliffhanger. We're like, oh my god, is it going to happen? Um, there was very... The palette was very much whites and yellows. And what I loved about that is it, the, that palette alluded to discovery to shining a light on it. it was as if we were trying to uncover or expose something you know it, it, and it wasn't like a yellow like an a matte like a creative yellow it was that yellow not sepia tone but yellow like we really are digging through and we're trying to discover something and that hoping that was the angle at which most of the lighting was done it was a lot of focus from above which mm-hmm. gave the feeling of 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 interrogation or accusatory you know. Or it could be literally when you are um, looking at something under a microscope. Exactly. You know, I mean, of course there was lighting from up front, but there was a lot of right from above lighting, especially when they were deal- when LBJ was dealing with these senators uh, or or uh, um, FBI guy. Um, oh, the head of the FBI dances around in underwear. J. Edgar Hoover. There it is. Um, you know, just having the way that light was there, because it wasn't for, in my opinion, the, the Senate on stage to judge. It was for us to be like, look back, pay attention. How does that make you, how does this moment in history make you feel? Right. It's like we're showing you how the sausage was made. It's right. not, you're not watching the sausage be made. You're watching how it was made, yeah. which I think is just an interesting um, way to focus it. 
Yeah. So I think that that leads us to the direction, mm-hmm. you know, um, which I truly love the direction of the show. I thought the pacing of the show was a sheer dream. This was a lot, a lot to take in in the show, and it was just paced perfectly. Um, the way that each tragedy or issue is introduced and then goes on its own journey while still contributing to the overall story arc was so ingenious. Um, it allowed us to have many irons in the fire without muddying the waters or overwhelming the audience. You know, we If you look back at American history in just the 20th century, I think there are a few handful of key moments where there was just a lot and I think the 60s probably had the most that change and events and happenings, you know. And to take this period and try to cover everything that happened even in, in just a short, short period. Yeah. You it's like what do you actually leave out because this contributed to this to this to this to this and we have to include this and this. So how do you make sure that all of that gets in there? Without overwhelming your audience. Right, because like for someone like me who didn't know anything about this, doesn't follow, you know, or didn't follow politics and didn't understand what had happened in that time period, it could have been really easy for me to get lost and confused. But I was able to hang in there fairly well that I could hold on to information and then find out more about it afterwards. Exactly. And they, just the way that they, were, like I said, it, it allowed us to be, we had this main through line, which was LBJ. And when we had these side things, you know, J. Edgar Hoover investigating Martin Luther King, the Mississippi burning, um, uh, the, the, the in- integrated voting group for Mississippi, the delegates, you know, all that kind of stuff. When it branched off from LBJ, it branched off, but it came back on. They tied it back on. They didn't just say, here's, you know, this is a spinoff and we'll, we're going to leave it there. No, they brought it back in. That way it wasn't just, we're giving you information and, and do with what you will, which I really appreciated because I hate when they like throw information out and you're like, I need to like catch that. I need to catch that. I need to catch that because you don't know what's going to come back. And then it never comes back and you're like, what was the point of that? But you've forgotten something else that you needed to. And you're like, wait, didn't something like that happen? You know, they did a really good job. And the way that it was spread out allowed us to retain all of it. Mm-hmm. Also, the marriage of all the design elements was so good in this show. Everything spoke and communicated together. There were little nuggets there that were just like, focus on this. We're trying to say this. We're trying to say it without saying it. Mm-hmm. You know? well, and something else that I really appreciated is, even though this was kind of about a triumph for L- LBJ... It didn't paint him as a saint. Like it didn't. Mm-hmm. It didn't go. Oh well, you know he's the winner in this, so we're gonna erase all of the negative that he done. It pointed out all of his flaws and brought up those things like we talked about earlier about him, you know, being rude and crass and being highly inappropriate in the workplace. You know, it kind of brought those things up, but still showed that it showed his humanity. That he could be this person who passed this important thing of legislation. But at what cost almost. Exactly. And so I love that they didn't erase. Like they didn't make him out to be this pure good guy. Well, by centering 
by having centering the action down in front of the people on the set as well as the audience, it allowed us to judge them by their actions, judge the past by their actions, their words, their thoughts. And that really carried that powerful message. Uh, it didn't feel necessarily like the director was pushing one political idea or the other, but rather just presented what happened and one possibility of what was in the mind of LBJ, which was brilliant. I didn't leave being like, you know, left or right by any mean like that. I was literally just like, oh, so that's what happened. That's history. Okay, cool. Good to know. And I, I appreciated that because I was like, don't tell me how to think. Just tell me what happened. Let me make up my mind. Facts are facts. They're not debatable. Opinions are debatable. Facts aren't. We can debate about conversations if they aren't factual. Mm-hmm. And be like, oh, that's your interpretation. Okay. But if it's factual, cool. Mm-hmm. So that's what was said. Oh, that's what happened. Good to know. The show has had several notable performers, including Michael McKean, James Eckhouse, Brandon J. Dearden, Betsy Adam, and Brian Cranston. about the impact the show has had on the theater and its history. So as far as theatrical impact, um, it brought an iconic period in history to the stage. You know, the I think it was Johnson's first fully elected term, the first year. Mm-hmm. Um, it brought his, a historic story to the stage. As we've mentioned, the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights uh, Act. Mm-hmm. And all that came with it. And I also thought it brought iconic characters and figures to the stage, you know. How many times have you seen LBJ in a play or a musical? How many times have you seen uh, Strom Thurmond? Ugh. You know, how many times have you seen Dr. Martin Luther King in a show? You know, it, it mm-hmm. put these people in the show on the on the theatrical well, and, stage. Well, uh, hearing about uh, Walter, oh my gosh, what's his last name? Oh, the the assistant? The assistant. Just, even though that wasn't a huge plot point. Walter Jenkins? Yeah, Walter Jenkins. It also just kind of showed how complex that time period really was. It wasn't cut and dry like it likes to make it out to be. It really was complicated and it had a lot of, a lot of different factors that fed into what was happening. Right. Well, what about Fannie Lou Hamer? I had no idea who that was. I didn't know um, about the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. I had no idea about that. And I was like, that's fascinating mm-hmm. that, that that happened. And oh my God, like this, putting those people up there on the stage and being like, hello, was incredible. So that that's the theatrical impact I thought it had. Now, moving on to societal impact. I thought it educated an audience about a major and important historical event. I mean, I just sitting here talking, the two of us, you know, in our... Um, I'm not going to reveal our ages. No, no. Um, you know, I knew briefly of what the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was. I couldn't really even tell you off the top of my head what it even 
gave what it covered, um, which I'm ashamed of. Um, I almost said it gave um, African Americans the right to vote, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure they already had that. Otherwise, why would they yeah, say it delegate? was? It was a uh, it was an act that provided protections for applying for like work. Um, you you couldn't. It was like kind of one of those dis, you can't be discriminated policies. So it's like uh, like so this when we is watched the after. Integration had taken place, the right to vote. Yes, yeah, so this is... Do you remember when we watched The Black Klansman? Yes. And um, it talked about how he could be on the police force now, and they couldn't tell him he couldn't. That's it. It was this. because of okay. this. See, and, but, but this is my point. I didn't know that. I didn't know about all this. Like, I learned so much. And I would consider myself a pretty well not... Like, I'm a big political history buff. I'm a pretty big history buff. And I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad that I do know now more about this event because it makes me look at... Well, I'm going to get to that in a minute because I want to say the next thing, which is because of the direction, it subliminally challenged audience to question history and the events of history and not just by what we are told, but what actually happened. What they said, what they did, what were their intentions? Don't become complacent. And that's what I'm getting at is this allowed me to look at something and go, oh, because it's so important to know how thing, like you said, the sausage is made. It's so important to know your history because by knowing your history, you understand your present. Mm-hmm. And these issues that this play dealt with they they didn't go away they're they're live and in person now mm-hmm. and when people are like i don't know how we got here i don't know what to do i'm like yes you do you know the answer to both because it's happened before and we have a record of it let's look at it we're smart we can figure it out because between the past and the now we know the answer well and i think having plays like this one is important especially for younger audiences because I don't know how it is for people in other places, but for like me in Utah, learning history, especially American history, there wasn't a lot of focus on outcomes or why. It was just, these are the events that happened in chronological order. And in so many, in so many ways, I thought that that's what history was, is just event, event, event. And actually, the why the event and the, and the, co- and the, um, a, the cause effect, and effect. The cause and effect of the event is the important part right. of history. That's why we need to know history. And so having plays like this to accompany history lessons, that way, because I understand why educators can't, like you, it's hard to talk about the cause and effect because of political climates and how do you teach these things to children without... How do you separate fact and opinion? Exactly. And so I understand that that is a very hard job to do. And that's why I think that history teachers are great. But having plays like this where it's a little bit easier. It relies to, on the humanity. It ex, it shows and, both and sides and the humanity. Exactly. Of it. So that's why I think having a history lesson accompanied with a historical fiction text right. helps to connect those dots for people. Right. And this show dealt with a humanitarian issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, that at the end of the day, that's... But this is why it's so important because we have... Evil thrives in ignorance. 
So if we don't remember or know things from the past, that's when the evil will just come back. So that's why I felt like this had a big societal impact. Still has a big societal impact. Right. So I think, honestly, this is where we should... Oh, I just wanted to add one more thing. Um, this was a... The last societal impact was... It, it, it was a great show to remind audiences of our history, of how far we came after a hard-fought struggle, and the dangers of going back. And the thing, I mean, the, the thing that, that mainly triggers for me is I'm thinking about the first thing that comes to my mind is that Mississippi burning. I mean, that haunts me. All they were doing was signing people up to vote, a basic thing. It's a basic... It's a basic fundamental right in our country, signing up people to vote, and they were killed for that. And I'm like, don't forget that. Don't forget that. Know that that struggle existed. We talk about the American Revolution and everything that happened there to ensure our freedom. We harp about that. We, we always harp about that kind of thing, but we don't remember things like that. And I'm like, we have to remember the Freedom Riders. We have to remember these struggles that happened in the 60s to get where we were. Don't forget them because we can't go back or we have to go through that again. And if we're shocked and appalled now at just the memory of it, what if we had to relive it? You know. Anyway, that's my TED talk. Thanks for coming. <laughs> so why don't we ask the question? Is this show still relevant? This show left a profound impact on me. And with all the chaos happening in our country, especially concerning personal rights and mainly voting rights, I think more than ever, this show is so, so relevant. I think people need to be reminded of how hard fought and how hard it was to get similar legislation passed the first time. Mm -hmm. I do think the show is well suited for community through regional theater as well. And I hope, I hope it will be done in communities who may feel a disconnect to history, you know? Um... And with that, I also say yes to Broadway. With a new director and a new team, I'd love to see what can be done. I will also add a caveat, though. This is not high on my list for a revival. I think there might be other stories and, and playwrights and things I can get there. But I do say that, that it is relevant for Broadway. Okay, so my hot take on this. And this is going to be controversial because I don't think I've ever in my life thought this or have wanted to say this. But I think that this play is best made into a movie to be shared with audiences, particularly to be accompanied with history lessons of the 1960s, especially when we're talking about the Civil Rights Act. I I am a firm believer that the best way to create change is by educating the youth because most adults are set in their ways and it's a lot harder to change the thoughts and perspectives on adults, especially people who lived through this time period. They're not going to be able to see quite what I think the show was portraying and normally I'd say yes always live on stage is better than in a movie but the reason why is 
this play done in a movie is going to have better distribution and to ensure the major points and the 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 meat of this piece get communicated now i would love to see this done regionally i would love to see this done in a community theater setting but i just don't realistically see that happening because it's going to it's going to be one of those shows that doesn't make money in a season and a company is going to have to work extra hard to get people in to see it so if they if we can distribute it as a film in a company with lesson i know they made a film okay i know they made a film i was just about to be like this just shows how often we are at the theater versus in front of the small screen because I was going to be like, you know that they made it into a film and it starred yes. Brian Cranston. Yes, but that's why I, I know that they made it into a film. Although and I'd I, like to see the film because I wonder how much it stuck to the original script. Right, but I think that using a play like this in conjunction with a theater or with a, a, a history lesson would be good. Would be the best use of the piece. Kind of like... Um, uh, Roots or um, mm-hmm. what was the other one? Glory. With Glory, yes. Yeah. Presented by Pepsi. Right. I think that this is another one of those things. And I love that it came to the stage first because it did get that immersive audience experience. But since since we can... This, this type of show lends itself to the brilliance of submerging the audience. Let it be a film. Get more people to know about it. And then we can start seeing this popping up in it's kind of like a few good men mm-hmm. you know it was a great film and now that people have seen like once people saw the film then they see it as a stage version it's going to be better used to get people into the theater rather than the other way around right we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show. We had the good fortune of seeing the show once back in 2014. Um, I think we've, I mean, it goes without saying, we were blown away by the show. It was great. It just, oh, so good. I remember we were in the back row, the last row of the Neil Simon Theater, and I remember the play being very long. I think it was about a three, maybe a three and a half hour long play. It was a long one. Yeah, but I just remember, I don't know why, but I, I stood up in the middle of the play and I remember standing it against the back wall because we were in the last row. But I do remember standing it against the back wall at the top of the aisle and watching the show, um, but just being really engaged, you mm-hmm. know. Um, almost like I, I'm, I'm sitting there listening and then I'm standing and then I'm sitting and then I'm standing, you know, like, but I was the whole time just engaged. Um, I was just so moved by this piece of political theater. I love political theater. Did I mention that? <laughs> uh, meeting the cast afterwards was amazing. And this was a... Okay, so this was an interesting Kiss and Cry line. So imagine, if you will, you're at the Kiss and Cry line, okay? The theater entrance, pretend, is on your left. And the stage door, okay, is on your right. 
Draw behind barricades. And this barricade was really long yep. because there were a lot of people there. But, yeah. So we're closer to the stage door on the right. Okay? And you're thinking, we're going to... We obviously are meeting the cast as they come out right away. But we're also thinking, we're going to get to meet Brian Cranston right when he comes out. How cool is that? No, Brian came out the theater door, so everyone who was basically at the end of the Kiss and Cry line was actually first to meet him. And then they filed people past you yeah. to leave. So first of all, um, we had to wait. Not a big deal. Because Brian Cranston is one of the nicest actors I have ever met. Oh my gosh. Okay, first of all, he would only sign merch or anything from this show. Nothing from Breaking Bad, Malcolm in the Middle. Nothing. If it wasn't from All the Way... No, he wasn't signing it. He wasn't doing it. He wasn't talking about it, which I like hardcore respect. And he like wanted to see your playbill and or your ticket like as you went by. Because there are people who will stop on the street and be like, oh, Brian Cranston, I'm going to I'm going to take a picture uh-huh. with him. And he's like, no, I want to see your ticket or your like he, he had a security guard, you know. And so I was like, no, if you didn't see the show, I'm not going to take a picture with you. Yeah. And I respect that because. You know, you're doing a show. You should be interacting with the audiences that came to see your show. And let's talk about your show. You are not one thing in the this world. This is not... Well, exactly. And also, this isn't Comic-Con. You yeah. Know, this. So, but he was so nice. And then he would... Okay, it was Father's Day. I remember this. It was Father's Day. It was a matinee. And the amount of time that he took with each person. It wasn't the quick... Uh, oh, you did come. Here, here's a picture and keep going. He took the time to sit and visit with each person and really make a connection. And I was like, you are so humble and genuine and kind. Well, and I'm sure for him it might have been cathartic because he had to step out of being LBJ. You know what I mean? And go back to being himself. And so I could see how something like this could be a good process for him as an actor. Well... In reading his autobiography or his biography, this seems like the kind of person that he is. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I'm just so grateful that I had the chance because he is—he's is such an incredible actor. He really the the depth this man has to play the people that he has, and I love that you took a picture and then he wouldn't let you leave without talking to you and getting a picture with you. He's well, like, no, 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 yeah. No. So I so okay. So when Andrew and I did the kiss and cry lines, I don't like to get my picture taken. I get really shy, and I just you know I like to treat people like people, and so I have a hard time. I, I just have a hard time being the focus at all. So when we go to these kiss and cry lines, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to take your picture. You are wonderful. Thank you. You know, that's kind of all that happens. Um, but while we're, like, when we I tried to do my thing, he's like, no, you come over here. You're a beautiful, you know, you're a beautiful human. Get over here. Let's get your picture taken. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm shy. He's like, you have no reason to be shy. Get over here. And, you know, and he talked to me, too. And I was like, that's so kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, so shout out to Brian Cranston. Wouldn't it be cool if he listens? That would be um, cool. But. <laughs> yeah, he's just, he's a, an incredible human. If you ever get the chance to meet him, he really is. Can't say enough good things about him. You'll be able to catch all the way at a theater near you. Um, somehow, I know that there's a movie. I don't know if it's on a streaming service, but here we are. 
We also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and a patron of our show by getting your backstage pass. Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by The Good Louds, Mela, Jesse Spillane, Jazzar, and Billy Murray. <laughs>